This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about book two. Uh, oh, no. Second half. Is book four of The Lord of the Rings, the second half of The Two Towers. This is so oh. confusing. <laughs> no kidding. It's, big, it's the, it's the ch- chapter starting with The Taming of Smeagol going to the end of The Two Towers. Does this book have a name? Because we've looked, we found names for like the ring set. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, it, it's kind of hard to find that. It's not in this particular book, I don't think. It just says book four. Oh, I, I thought it was called Don't Get Tangled Up with a Spider. Oh, I thought it was called Frodo's Logging Through the Marshes Forever. <laughs> yeah, when people complain about The Lord of the Rings as being like nothing but a bunch of people walking, like that's what this book is. I'm not, this is my least favorite book yeah, of, of, the, of the six, I guess. Um, and it's probably because it is so gloomy. I mean, yeah. one of the things that's nice about uh, Tolkien is we always... Uh, we enjoy the journey, right? We see all the beautiful trees and the flowers, and then the night comes down, and they have, you know, the the typical journey sort of discussion, and they then they sing a poem. <laughs> um, this one, yeah, it has poems. It has uh, walking. It has some fauna. Uh, a couple of rabbits. Some flora. Yeah, a little Four bit of fauna. Yeah. Dead rabbit. Uh, one giant piece of fauna. Stew. Uh, yeah. But it's pretty grim. They're kind of depressed all the way through as well. Like, well, we're walking to our death. You know. yeah. But I think it's necessary when you think about the book as a whole and Frodo in particular. I was just thinking about that because I was really, I put off reading this for so long because I knew the marshes were coming. Mm-hmm. And, but what I had forgotten are there are various stopping points where Frodo is encountering people who kind of bring you out of that some. And so that those were kind of nice breaks that I'd forgotten because, as Seth mentioned, of the overall gloom. But in it, I believe what we see is kind of a purifying of Frodo a little more and also Sam because all these choices that we're making and that he's been instructed in by Gandalf, like, you know, you should show mercy and these various things are really put to the test when you're at your lowest. Yeah. And he's being put to the test of, you've got to be able to do this in order to carry on and finish off uh, Yeah, and in I, terms of story. Sorry. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Sam, like I, this is my first time through as you all know. And um, I really liked the way that uh, the story went to Sam here. Like he was such a hero and um, it's basically telling the story. He's telling the story and he's, he's doing all the heroic things. Like where, where Frodo gets immobilized, Sam goes forward. And when, when Frodo's right. darkness, Sam sees light. Like I really like that. Um, like, you know how the whole thing is, we're, we, we've given this to the lowly hobbits and Sam is the, the lowest, the gardener. And he has been given so much to do. Here and and he's come from so far. I, I, I love the journey of, of the evolution of Sam in this book. Uh, I found the title yeah. of book four. It's the journey to Mordor. 
Oh, oh okay. That's appropriate. Book three yeah. was yeah. Book three yeah. was the Treason of Isengard. Book four is the Journey to Mordor, and yeah, the Journey to Mordor is not going to be fun. But my, um, you're right. The um, Sam, and it's not so obvious at the beginning, but by the end, Sam is the one who's doing everything, and you're seeing everything from his point of view, pretty much. And he has struggles. I mean, he's very jealous of Gollum. That's part, and he's right. To, not to be jealous necessarily, but he's right to worry about Gollum. But it's his jealousy that kind of drives one of the most unfortunate incidents in the book. So, um, yeah, it's, it's that's a wonderful point. Yeah, you see, seeing more than you know the rest. One one of the things that I did enjoy in this in this book is the meta stuff. Did you guys? Catch yeah, that yeah, that was really cool. Hmm. Yeah. So he says, like um, one day, one day I imagine, uh, Mr. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, <laughs> sir, I imagine, <laughs> I imagine that, uh, they'll be telling of our adventures. Yeah. And it might be a red, a, a, a book with red and black text, uh, you know, or red text on a black, right? Story. Yeah. And, it's, you know, of the, and of course, in subsequent publications, they did, do it like that. Did, did, did you also notice that Gollum even says um, Smeagol must save them both and he thinks of another way there was once upon a time. Ooh, <laughs> I did not catch that. Yeah, yeah. And then I was thinking about that too at the end when, um, when you know, all the, the orcs are talking about this, this, this huge elf that slayed, she, you know, the spider. Yeah. And I was thinking about this part where, where they're saying, tell me more about Sam, Dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, you saying that is interesting because I noticed that part at the end where they're like, oh, the huge elf warrior. And I thought, wow, okay, because to them, he's a villain. A huge elf warrior is a villain. And one of the things I hadn't noticed until now is when they're having that wonderful passage about, wow, story is not as heroic when you're in the middle of it. It's just ordinary <laughs> people trying to do the best they can. It's looking back that makes them into heroes or not. And Sam says, do you think Gollum thinks he's the hero or villain of the story? And I started thinking, oh my gosh, that's a huge point. We're Mm -hmm. all telling ourselves our own story every day and we're never the villain. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can look back and go, wow, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. Those are our low points. But are we villains? No, because we know from the inside or we're making excuses and you just brought the orcs into that. They also are not the villains of their story. Yeah, uh, I mean, that speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Seth. Uh, that speech uh, that Sam overhears uh, near the end of this book um, is what inspired the Richard K. Morgan uh, trilogy of fantasy books. Did you guys? Oh, the Steel Remains, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I don't know those. No, me oh, well. Yeah, so there's he he does a uh an essay on what they say in there and how this is, you know, seeing it from the orcs point of view, which we also see in the earlier book of the two towers, right? Um Mary and Pippin trust up right. overhear mm-hmm. the conversations of different orcs arguing with each other and it it's a similar sort of conversation. Right. Uh, 
and this is this is one of the things that now that we're this deep into the book, I'm really appreciating in this read is is how well structured. You know, we we talked about this before, looking forward and looking back. Mm-hmm. And even though this is sort of such a grim and sort of slog through the the dead marshes and the you know the horrible horrible lands that are full of horribleness and suppression, <laughs> um, even though it's got that. There's a, on a number of structural interesting things in here, and that that is one one of the is the reappearance of the orc's point of view. It's really Sorry. nuanced and multi layered, isn't it? You don't yeah. think of it because of those little yeah. things, but wow. Yeah, and I, I, I interrupted you, Seth. Sorry. Yeah. For um, he has this reputation for being a yeah. Tolkien kind of does these um, things, and people. Ha- the reputation that Tolkien has among like the George R. R. Martin crowd is that oh Tolkien is you know black and white good versus evil there's no depth and certainly no Tolkien does have a I think at the end of the day a very black and white uh, moral sensibility but he's also has an understanding of history and and culture and I think he does he understands um, you know cultural relativism even if he doesn't necessarily ascribed to it, but he is aware of the other point of view, and these orcs are, you know, in some ways as unfortunate as Gollum or or anyone else in this whole war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how were how were they created? I know you told me this before, but they they're sort of unwittingly became orcs. Is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah. Sauron's, Sauron's boss, yeah, uh, Melkor, who's one of the Ainur or um, kind of seven seven gods of this of this world. He um he yeah took elves and tortured them and and twisted them into orcs so yeah they didn't necessarily want to be there in the first place right yeah they're acting according to their perverted nature mm-hmm. essentially um, it doesn't mean you like them but it means when he shows that point of view you at least understand them a little better and and that's a good point about him understanding relativism even if he doesn't ascribe to it because. You have to have, you have to make a choice when you're telling a story. You have to have a point of view. You have to have something you're trying to say or the whole thing floats off into nothingness. And so for him to be black and white on what's good and bad, he at least is giving us the contrast and the reasons he thinks so. Like when we see Mordor and they're just standing there or, you know, the blight that has been left by the rule of Sauron over Mordor and you're just like, because you know where the hobbits came from. They saw the contrast and Mm -hmm. we too can see the contrast. And if something good is to be found in there, they're going to look for it. They see the um, flowers growing around the lopped off King's head from the statue. They see the bit of uh, moon or lighted sky shining down. It's the last thing before it becomes totally dark. Mm -hmm. And so you're allowed to see even there, there are glimmers of what we would call beautiful and good. Nothing yeah. is completely blighted. And um, and also in terms of, you know, dark and light, you've got Frodo and Gollum, who at mm-hmm. one point, at one point, Sam says, these two were in some way akin and not alien. They could read each other's minds. And then you have the, you have two sections where Sam sees Frodo sleeping, and Frodo's face is peaceful with marks of fear and care left in it, but it looks old and beautiful. Um, at, you know. And then you see Gollum when they're sleeping, and it says, for a fleeting moment, 
one could see the sleep, if the sleepers could have seen him, they'd have seen, um, they would have seen an old weary hobbit shrunken by the years that had carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin and fields and streams of youth, starving and pitiable. But the way that those two bits are together, it almost seems like, you know, these two could have been each other, you know, right. different yeah. circumstances. So the, the 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 difference between light and dark isn't that stark. It's sort of a little bit fluid. Uh, I I like. Um, That's a beautiful point. Sorry. Yeah, I like I like how um, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the movie uh, in this book is the argument between Gollum and himself. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's yeah. well done. Yeah. It's, that's one of the ways they, they, they do it pretty well. They stick to the book, but the way it's edited, um, it's almost like there's two, go- two golems there, right? Arguing with himself. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I like about, you know, why is Gollum, bad and how has he been made bad right like i mean the way sam talks about him <laughs> you think <laughs> that he is yeah like i was feeling sorry for him yeah, yeah thinker and slinker but, linker. right so which one is the evil one right they're both evil right right, right. slinks around and he can't he's not trustworthy and the other one is a stinker in that he's he's you know out to cheat you so no matter what sam doesn't sort of give him any slack and that is, I mean, it's un, it feels unfair. And when, when Gollum points it out, he says, Oh yes, I'm going doing work for you right now. Yes. And, and so he apologizes, right? Mm-hmm. He apologizes to him. Um, but he, it's, you know, he says, you know, you know, you're right. I, I, I was, that was a bit unfair of me. So I apologize, but he doesn't let it go. Gollum doesn't let it go. And he starts doing this passive aggressive sort of no i am a dirty rotten stinker right yeah um and then he says that to uh frodo as well and it's like so this is the real problem here is is that he's completely unlikable yeah (laughs) Um, Yeah. but he's sort of you know because he's so pitiable you we want to give him the benefit of the doubt but really i mean he's a bad guy well, and, well, and even yet, though, as Misa said, there is still something way down deep that could be redeemed if the timing hadn't been so awful for Sam to wake up, which Tolkien called the greatest tragedy of the whole book, in his opinion. Really? Hmm. Yeah. He said that was the worst moment because that was the moment when Gollum could have been saved. But Sam woke up. And because of what he says, it drives him back. And I remember listening to the Tolkien professor, whether it was his Mythgard Academy thing or his um, classes where he points out, he says, but the thing is, is that Sam was right. You can't really blame Sam, but that's the lost opportunity. If he hadn't reacted just the way he did, Gollum might have been saved. Wow. But... You know, it's it's he's because one of the things, Jesse, when you mentioned that conversation back and forth, which is brilliantly put in the book, you never have a question of who's who. Um, mm-hmm. But what you see is Smeagol starts off holding the line. No, I promised the master and I'm going to protect the precious. And but what Gollum the Gollum part of his personality does is just very gradually twist what he promised. Well, but you promised this. Mm-hmm. 
little differently. That's not doing it. And by that, he's talking himself into doing something awful that he'll be okay with doing. And and in the end, we see what the, what the ring has promised him. And I'm like, I love the way that the ring yeah. promises. So awesome, right? Based on the personality of the person, because this is the most it can work with. And so Gollum's wish is to be Gollum the Great. The Gollum oh. eat fish hey, every huh. day, three times a day, fresh three from the sea. Times. And I'm like, ooh, raw fish three times a day. This is your dream. Wow. <laughs> you poor, yeah, no, we're would, right to pity him. Sushi. That'd be fine. Yeah. There, there's a, yeah, sort of a yeah, sadness to how his, great his modest dreams are. Right. But but it's also funny because there's a description uh, of him somewhere in this book, um, probably right around that or how he's acting. Right, mm-hmm. he he's like a dog off a leash. That's what Sam then, calls him. He says, You're "Yeah, like that's a dog right." On the At the beginning, when after he's promised, yeah. And what's so funny is is he acts that way. He, he does everything. He's like a dog in every way. Except dogs, we always think of as loyal, but <laughs> but but that's that's only part of dogs, right? They are very happy to do things that are disobedient, but they will totally act guilty when when they are confronted by their guilt, right? You know, the, by their their crime. But dogs, we also don't normally think of as you know turning on their masters. Mm-hmm. But that master uh, pet relationship or the master dog relationship is also in the, think of like, uh, he doesn't want his f- food cooked. And how does he describe fish? He calls them sweet. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I like fish and everything, but it, it ain't, it ain't sweet. Yeah. Right. That's not the way I would describe it. And everything that we think of as sort of yummy food, he thinks of as like everything that we like, he hates. Yeah, did you, you know, when they were going when they were going through the herbs and 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 Sam and and Frodo were like, oh, this smells so great, and he's like retching. Yeah, the <laughs> worst. It's something good. It's awful. Uh, there was one other thing though when we were talking about I can't remember, but I was struck this time through. You know, you know. Anybody who's seen the movies, and we all have, at the end, there's a reason to keep showing him mercy. But I had forgotten that there are two moments when Frodo directly calls Gandalf's words to mind. One, they're quoted to us again, in case we've forgotten about, you know, can you give out life? Then don't be yeah. so to give out death. Be merciful. We don't know. Yeah. And I was realizing that I was thinking of the big picture of we know Gollum has a very important part to play. But even here, Gollum saying, no, no, he understands the eye better than they do. When when Proto's going, well, I got to do it. I guess I better go up to the gate and just see what happens. And he's like, <laughs> oh, you, he's looking for you here. There's a way he's not looking for you. Come on, let's go this way. Here's how we'll plan it out. And I'm like, I didn't think of him being such a contributor to what they were doing. I mean, I know he was trying to lure him for his own purposes, but he also had very sound reasoning of, you're not thinking it through, man. Here's what you do. And I hadn't thought of him as being an independent, active character in just in terms of the big, let's get Frodo to the right place at the right time. And yet, if also, if he hadn't been there to get them through the marshes, it makes the point they're the only ones who were light enough to get through that path, probably. Yeah. And also, if they'd have gone on the only other way, they'd have been captured. So it, it was just an interesting look at... 
I don't know, Gollum being smart enough to move things in the right direction, you know? Yeah, that's part of it. Part of it is just Tolkien's whole shtick about um, even the worst evil um, god or whatever whatever you want to call it, Iluvatar in this world, or Chance, if Chance you mm-hmm. call it, you know, whatever. Um, but it has this quality of taking evil and diverting it to diverting it to good. Right, right. And and, and, and there's a, says that too. He says he is entwined with my fate. We have to take him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He that deal with Faramir that could have gone all kinds <laughs> of wrong. Yeah, that was yeah intense. But let's the movies, let's the talk movies about, screwed that up big time. Yeah, let's talk oh about that. Oh my gosh, let's talk yeah. about Faramir. Yeah, he's completely missing from the oh movies. Gosh, right? I love well, him. He's not missing, so but much. he they try to do a like. For dramatic tension, he starts out being just like Boromir, and then they right. change. He changes. Yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> well, him as a, as the character we see here. Yeah, like right. yeah. Gollum in the herbs. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the this is one of the structural things that I really really like. So Faramir comes upon three travelers in his land that are in a land where he's been forbidden to do anything but slay or uh, tie up uh, anybody. Does this remind us of anything? Three travelers uh, in a land. In the, the elves one? Well, in the previous two towers, we have uh, a dwarf, a human, and an elf running over the oh. Rohan. Oh. Rohan, Rohan, yeah. Right, and they see a bunch of riders who are uh, just finished slaying some orcs, and they say, "Who be you?" Right? <laughs> wow, I never now, thought of that as being a mirror. It is yeah, totally, it totally genius. Is. That, that awesome. <laughs> it's structural. It's yeah. it's, it's so interesting. It's always <laughs> reflecting back, but it's not exactly the same either, right? Because of course, Gollum is completely, you know, he he slips their grasp, but also. Um, in in the case of of the previous right, uh, Aragorn and crew uh, in the van. <laughs> <laughs> right, that was great. <laughs> they show themselves on purpose, whereas um, you know the, the riders are riding by and then they stand up and sort of uncloak themselves and and expose themselves to these riders. That is not how uh, Frodo and company are greeted. Right, they are hunted. They don't reveal themselves. They are found. Yeah. Yeah. Which is and like that's, Pippin. That's the opposite of of it, right? Well, and Pippin and Mary were hunted and found also, but what you see is the righteous versus the evil. How do they, you know, one grabs them and take the orcs, grab them and take them off, and then these guys are like, well, we'll talk to you. So, yeah. On. But uh, also uh, another reflection uh, from previous book, uh, or maybe it's the first, uh, second half of uh, fellowship, um, is the you can come into our lands. That's fine, but you need to be blindfolded. Yeah, right. Yeah, they explicitly call that one out because yeah. they know about that one, right? The hobbits. Yeah. They say this is just like that time. All the blindfolded Gollum. It's all right. And so uh, that's that's an interesting parallel. He, he, they also get the same. Um, I mean, this this is probably more to do with cu- the culture of you know the. There's a bit about Faramir talking about how the Rohirrim are 
sort of an off branch of the Gondorians and the Gondorians are sort of reflecting now more like the uh, Rohirrim. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sort That's of a, yeah, I feel like that was a foreshadowing for time, yeah. for later on with Eowyn. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because what he's starting to point out, what you're starting to get, I felt, was the echo of, or or the the setting up of, well, the Rohirrim are great, but they're pretty warlike, and they've become a little more like us. They've got the higher arts now, but we've kind of descended a little. So yeah, he's that's kind how of, I felt too. Yeah, he's kind of contrasting and comparing and going, let me show you two different ways to think about these cultures. They both got good things, nothing wrong with either of them, but one is definitely preferred over the other. And then later, since this is a reread for me, you see that flower, essentially. Yeah. So Aylmer acts in the same way as Faramir does, right? He says, I have strict orders. I'm supposed to slay everybody. Um, And yet I'm going to go against those orders because you tell a good story and... Um, I will suffer the consequences, but be, bear that in mind, please, while you're <laughs> yeah, around in, my land. Put in a good word for me. Yeah. Yeah. Also, As I'm being executed. He's got this power of reading your mind. Yeah, what was that? When he said he says something about I am, we are descended from, oh God, I don't know where it is. The Numenorians. New, yeah, what, yeah. Does, what does that mean? Who are they? So, so Numenor is like the western lands that all the men came from. Well, why does yeah. he compare that with Ga- the, the with the wizards then? Yeah, like the, Sam makes that comparison. You're, you're almost like Gandalf. Yeah, Seth it's wisdom. It's well, I wisdom. I don't know the so, wizard the wizard connection. Yeah, that that I thought was interesting, but yeah, I think you're right. It's wisdom. That that's the so what but makes yeah, Gandalf is basically Atlanta. Um, the men were. It's like the original oh. stock, right? The really great isn't Eric yeah. a Numenorian? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's we came from like the original Tunadane. great stuff. Yeah. Okay. But it's it's not so much about the it's not so much about race in this case. Is what makes Aomer wise is that he acts wisely and Gandalf, right? It's not his it's magic. It's not his magical powers right. that make him so awesome. It's because he's full of lore, right? He knows everything. He's He's traveled everywhere. He's met everybody. And he applies it well. Right. That's the and, wisdom. And that's that's what we see in Faramir as well, right? Faramir yeah. is wiser than his brother. Mm-hmm. But the mind-reading thing was totally... I mean, because he it's obvious when he does it to Gollum. But it's... but And also, he won't probe beyond what you could take. Because Gollum doesn't like it, but he's like, oh, there's all these closed doors that I can't see behind... And you feel like he could have forced it, but he was too much of a gentleman or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he kind of indicated, didn't he, that he could, from what he could see of Frodo, he could see that he was on the level. So he was like, yeah. okay with it. You know, he was judging him. Galadriel as well, right? Another right. Reflection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How could I have forgotten that? Because I wouldn't go so much like he actually has mind reading abilities. What it is, what he is good at is reading your you know your intentions based on what you say. And no, there was something where he was like, it was pretty specific. Was pretty yeah, it, with Gollum, he was metaphor. Really, I don't think I don't think it's like actual like you know like uh, ESP. Well, yeah, no, I, it is, yeah. okay. 
Well, it says, come hither, said Faramir. Look at me. Do you know the name of this place? Have you been here before? Slowly Gollum raised his eyes and looked unwillingly into Faramir's. All the light went out of them, and they stared bleak and pale for a moment into the clear, unwavering eyes of the man of Gondor. There was a still silence. Then Gollum dropped his head and shrank down until he was squatting on the floor, shivering. We doesn't know, and we doesn't want to know, he whimpered. Never came here. Never come here again. There are locked doors and closed windows in your mind and dark rooms behind them, said Faramir. But in this, I judge that you speak the truth. It is well for you. Blah, blah, blah. So because of that, come here, I got a look in your eyes and that conversation. I didn't feel like you're saying like it was ESP, but I felt like he could look in some and probe and judge. That's what was going on. That's but that's what wisdom is, right? Is being able to judge based upon what you see in a person. Now, this is it's not magic is what he's trying. He's not using like some magic power. No, right? but it's what, an innate ability that because he's of the people of Gondor or of his race or whatever it is, he's got he can do that. And, yes, you know, yes. he but it's more it's than his, his character, men too, have. like. Boromir couldn't do that, and Bor- right. Boromir was his brother, so it's, right. you know, it's yeah. his character also. Right. Sorry. But Boromir was more interested in Boromir, though. No, he was, he, was, he, was, he was country first, rather than wisdom first. Right. 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 And that's what he said. Right. He's like, he was like that from a kid. I wish, I wish we could be the yeah. king. He's like, I never wanted to be the king. I, you know, I just, because that leads to that fantastic speech, which is really... Let's see, I wrote it, if you don't mind, if I read a little of it. He um, talks about, it's the best reason ever given for, for war, where he says... Yeah, uh, I love that stuff about war and cu- the culture of war. Um, he's very, you know, uh, is it the one about, I love the sword not for its keenness and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, this is um, for myself, said Faramir. I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown return and Minas Tirith in peace. Menace Enor, as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her, an- her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man, old and wise. And then he talks later, or maybe before that, about how he's like, I would be happy for the king to come. I don't care about ruling anything. I just want things the way they should be. And you're just like, wow, this is a righteous man. This is a man equal to Aragorn. In, and you yeah. can see how he's mm-hmm. a steward as he should be. He's willing to hand it over to Aragorn when he shows up. And he's the standard against which we can judge Boromir, and later when we meet him, his father, Denethor. This is the guy. You know, you just, ah. Yeah. Love it. You, awesome. you, Sorry. you know, in, in, the, um, in the, did you listen to the radio drama? Of this? Not recently. Oh, not recently though. Well, when they when they come to Faramir finding out the about the ring, 
And you know that speech where he says, I thought I perished from the world, Boromir tried to take it, and you escaped and ran all the way to me here uh, in the <laughs> wild, I have you two halflings. The way, the way that that yeah. is performed in the, in the radio drama, it was like the ring was actually had him for a second, like it was teasing him. Mm-hmm. But when I read it, when I first read it, I didn't think, I thought that he was, it was just speaking. I didn't think that he yeah. was being influenced by the ring. But now, and what you just said, you, like, it sounds like you don't think he would have been either. Awesome. But I'm wondering what, what you thought about that. Yeah, I think that that's a nice, a uh, nice interpretation, but they, they could go the other way as well. But I think if you're condensing it, it's, it's a nice uh, sort of reminder of that. Well, you were wondering what I thought of him. Oh, sorry. Taking it or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just everybody. Yeah. Well, I, everybody. Well, because, you know, later when he finds out about the ring, he does, Tolkien's teasing us and he's teasing the Hobbit. He's like, oh, here you are in my power and I could take it and I could do this. <laughs> And you, it's almost an echo of Galadriel when she's like, I've thought about yeah, this yeah. a long time. And he doesn't draw it out, but you're meant he, to think he, yeah. that. And then it's, you realize. With, he stood up, he stood up very tall and stern, <laughs> gray eyes blinking. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, I told you I wouldn't take it if I found it in the highway and we tell the truth. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. Yeah. I love oh. that line. And he's like, uh, oh, oh, fair mirror. Hello. Yeah. Come here. <laughs> yes. It's not a romance novel, Julie. Well, <laughs> there's something noble. Listen, there is something in a lady that thrills to that kind of a righteous attitude in a warrior. I'm just saying it wasn't meant to be that way, but it should inspire you and make you kind of go, wow. What a yeah, guy. I, and in a lady, I, the response yeah. tends to be a bit romantic. I can't help it. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, they ruined yeah. him in the movie, but the but the the face I have on him is from the movie and that's okay. That's fine. Well, that actor is great. Yeah, movie. he's he's a good actor. What's his name? Wenham. Um yeah, he I mean he did a good job. It was just the yeah. the screenwriting of, of his character uh, was, was awful. Yeah, but, he was um, just a crybaby. <sighs> And with, of course, I was, I'm very deserved daddy issues, but that's jumping ahead of ourselves. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. What were you saying, Marissa? Oh, I said I'm going to wait to watch these movies again until we're done. Mm-hmm. So uh, just going back to what uh, Aragorn, uh, you know, is a ranger of the north. This is our ranger of the south as well. Faramir. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's south. Right. And, you know, he also makes the connection that he is not just a Numenorean, but also a, uh, related to Dunedain, right? That's so, right. it. That's, he's the Dunedain. Er- yeah. all Numenorians or whatever. It, yeah. That's which basically means Man of the West, which is a Numenorean. Except for the Southrons, yeah. right? right. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and this um, is a small point, but I was so happy that Sam got to see his Oliphant. Oliphant! I oh, know! Oh my gosh, wonderful. <laughs> and so exotic, the uh, men of the South that are riding them. And I know that later everybody, you know, these days everybody's like, oh, that's terrible the way he portrayed them. But in the time that this book was written and read, that must have just seemed like the Arabian Nights, but not necessarily in a bad way, just that they're so exotic. You yeah, know. and Sam even to to Tolkien's credit, Sam also has a moment where he reflects on that, and he's like, you know, what what false promises did Sauron make to these guys to right. you know bring them up? They're not evil men per se. They're you know again even kind of like the orcs, although even less so. You know, they're 
they're not inherently evil. They've just been tricked. Um, I think Faramir at one point says, yeah, at, at one point Gondor's sway was long enough that we had these guys paid tribute to us. So, you know, they're not, they're not, um, black devils or, you know, something yeah. that another pulp writer might, might say about them. Well, and there are men of the North who come also when um, they're outside the gates and they see all the big army and it's all kinds of people. But, yeah, that's a good point. I'd forgotten that because he's thinking about the young warrior he sees die or whatever. He's like, yeah. oh. You know, so you're they're hum- even they are humanized some. Did you also notice that they were dressed up like Robin Hood? Yes, I oh. did. That was great. <laughs> oh, that's right. Green they were. <laughs> you um, do think of Robin Hood. They've yeah. got their bows and they're in the w- green wood and yeah, and they've but they've also got like the you know their uniforms are green yeah and uh, you know the they're the sort of the merry men of of Sherwood and they've got this secret layer in the mm-hmm. in the in that land. It's also um, the only instance I think of you see a bit of it's not necessarily religion but something that could be construed as prayer in the book right before they eat and they just kind of stand there for a minute and they go we think of. The people who came before us, or something. I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah, no, that, yeah, that is probably the most religious thing in the entire yeah. Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Which is yeah, extraordinary. Like, I feel like a rube. They don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, it's very unusual because I, I don't remember that showing up anywhere else in Gondor either. Mm-hmm. Frodo gets defensive about it too. He's like, "Oh, we don't do that, but we we bow to our our hosts and we say thank you and please. We're not total rubes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're not barbarians." <laughs> Yeah, he really feels like a hayseed then. Yeah. Don't you guys do this too? Oh, uh, <laughs> no. Now, further reflection back also, uh, based on that meeting in the, in the secret lair, uh, is instead of Frodo giving away too much, it's Sam who gives yeah. away too much, right? Uh, he overspeaks and mentions the ring, uh, in the same way that, uh, Frodo does in singing the song. In the most oh, right. charming, yeah. family-like oh, uh, way. Huh. Oh my gosh, so good. Yeah. How dare you talk to my master like that? And you again, know. it's another one of those moments where Faramir even says, you know, I know you you feel like you you messed up, but I think you've actually done your master some good. You know, you, right. He says, you know, your heart your heart might have spoken to you more plainly than your than your mind was about it being safe to trust oh, me. Foreshadowing again, heart overhead. Thinking of the very right. end of the book. So uh, another just geographical reflection. Um, it, we're underground in in the Imin Mule, aren't we? It's not just like in the trees. They're That's underground. Rocks. It's a bunch I of rocks. Were, I, mean, I thought they were behind a waterfall. It's yeah. It's like cave. some sort of. It's yes. It's a, like a secret layer that they get to and. It's it's not horrible, right? So yeah. That's that's Helm's Deep too, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, it kind yeah. of is. Yeah, yeah. It kind Cliff of is. face, yeah. kind of cave thing. Yeah, but it's the- it's like sort of the, you know, I mean, the book is called the Two Towers, and we get the we get the reflection across. I mean, what's so cool about this book is when it starts off just right in that first chapter, we actually see the rest of Gondor, right? We see yeah. Rohan, yeah, from Sam and and Frodo looking looking west. They can see a, stor- a storm over those lands, and they can see it, it's headed their way. You know, the sun's going down, and then we're back in this land. And that, that storm, you know, continues through this this book, mm-hmm. the sort of the dark skies. And um, it's 
it's a really nice geography, mm-hmm. really nice sort of um, reflection back. And so when we're thinking about, you know, the two towers is also projecting ahead, it's going to be Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul. We see right. Minas Morgul before we see Minas Tirith. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember when they named the book and Tolkien, you know, of course, was fighting to have the whole thing done as one and he didn't he didn't really like the names, but he didn't mind the two towers too much because he felt he thought there are so many different towers. People won't necessarily know what they're talking about, so it doesn't give anything away. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, but he, he likes to give things away, but he also likes the like. So the ta- the chapter titles, The Taming of Smeagol. Smeagol's not tamed, is it? Right. Right? Yeah, I guess that's uh, ironic. You're right. It's all like that. They're all like that. Yeah. So uh, the next one is yeah. the passage of the marshes. So um, that one maybe maybe not as obvious, but that's also one of the darkest chapters. Oh, man. Yeah, that's horrible. The black gate is closed. Well, yes, but there is also a black gate that's open, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And he's telling you what what's going to happen of herbs and stewed rabbit. And there's not much <laughs> much you can do it. <laughs> With that, except notice that it starts with of, right? Mm-hmm. Not herbs and stewed rabbit. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. yeah, what kind of comes from all that. And the that's the on, one yeah. time that Sam, now that I'm thinking about it, ever gives Smeagol real orders, isn't it? And Smeagol actually does what he says. Mostly, yeah. yeah. He, he doesn't get the uh, the herbs, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, he well, yeah. yeah. Nasty, yeah, smelly. <laughs> Please continue. That's the best imitation I've heard yet. <laughs> These smelly herbs. You ruined the conies. What a conies. <laughs> no. What a taters. What's taters, precious? You never, you never mind. My lad, just go find me some. Oh my gosh, you could do the audio drama yourself. You're amazing, yep. Jesse. That's great. <laughs> about all the skills I got more, there. More, more. That's more, yes. That was good. But I did yeah, love we the get the homely things, you know. Yeah. We get the anachronistic fish and chips, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> I don't know how they get fried good. fish and they do yeah, yeah. chips, you're right. But so, um, I loved also Sam's, I, I would call it optimism, but I think it's just blind determination. And he's still carrying around his pots and pans. There's no reason <laughs> yeah. to think he's ever going to cook again. <laughs> he's like, I've got him right here. I'm so at it. That makes me uh, want to talk about the vial or the file, right? <laughs> of of light, uh, just like the rope, right? Everything got, has to be used. These are the the uh, Chekhov's shotguns. Sorry. The belt that uh, that Boromir is given, he never really gets to use it, except it turns up, right? It gets mentioned. In that Faramir has reports that somebody saw uh, his brother going down, and then we get the horn. So the the magic items. Well, he had a vision. <laughs> yeah, he had a vision, and he was wearing a belt. He didn't know. Right. Yeah, that's what connects them. Yeah. So the, all the magic items that that uh, are hmm. dropped in in earlier in the books. Uh, get used here, well, but the pots and pans are not the magic items. No, and yet finally they're taken all the way across Middle Earth. <laughs> they're used once, right? They're used once. Well, they they, make... they they said hobbits. Um, what did they say? Learn to cook before they speak, and Sam was especially good. Oh, you're right. Oh man, you're right. Wow. 
That is true. Well, and the thing with Sam is he's so practical. I mean, he worried about having rope the whole time. He finally gets some rope, and I felt very satisfied because he'd been worrying, so I was too. And then he forgets he even has the rope. Yeah, oh, that scene was so great. Finally uses it, and I love the thing when Frodo's giving him just all this grief of, wow, good thing we weren't halfway up when that gave. And he's like, no, it came I want, when I, I called want, it. I want to pause you there, Julie. Oh, sorry. Because- there's, I want to come back to that, but I, I want to do one more structural thing before we get there, because that's important. I'm sorry, I, no. I don't. Uh, I, I definitely want to talk about I'm this. Just excited. Uh, let's, let's, let's do uh, the one more thing that's parallel, and then uh, we'll, we'll go there. Uh, the sh- Shellob stings Sam. No, stings Frodo, right? Right. Um, and this is the second time that. Frodo's been stabbed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At the end of the fellowship of yeah. the ring, he gets the the evil, you know, oh, yeah. dagger in him. Yeah, Morgul blade. Um, yeah. Wait. And it's a Morgul. So it's called a Morgul oh, yeah, blade. Oh, yeah, yeah, got it. Sorry. I and the Morgul they're, blade. In Minas, they're in Minas Morgul now. So, you know, right. it's kind of interesting, actually. Yeah. Right. He's, he's like a pincushion. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You and your structure. I love this. Thank you so much. It, it is really interesting that that... Like you would think it would be Sam that gets stabbed, but no, it's Frodo again. He's always getting stabbed. Yeah, and yet he's also the one that's armored, right? The target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of repetition, right before that, so the first time he goes, he goes running into Shelob's lair. But right before that, a couple of chapters before that, he went running towards the um, the the bridge where the the race bridge. Like that's a repetition too. He's running blindly. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. To the bridge. Nice. Oh, good one. Well, Speaking and Shelob, go ahead. There's also a um, a linguistic clue about um, Kirith Ungol is cool. is the sort of past where Shelob lives, mm-hmm. and in the Silmarillion, uh, Melkor, we were talking about him earlier. He's the one who twisted the elves. He had a giant spider, and her name was Ungoliant. So um, that <gasps> Ungol there, um, and Shelob, I believe, is actually Ungoliant's daughter. Um, yeah, so it's, it just goes back to what we keep coming back to of how linguistically unified and real this world feels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, so being we also see those the other spiders that are her children in Mirkwood in in right. Hobbit, right? Right. Also evil. She mentioned. Oh, well, yeah. The narrator mentions. Uh, I guess it's Tolkien or whoever is telling the story of the Lord of the Rings mentions her background, right? And right. Uh, her descendants and how she gets her food and all of that. And then the, the orcs confirm that later. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I'm not, I read this somewhere. He was terrified of spiders and maybe that's why that whole scene is so horrible. I mean, you just feel it. You feel those cobwebs. You feel that you're totally blind. You don't know where you're going. There's something awful there. You can tell, you know, um, that anybody would be horrified by that. But I feel like Tolkien was putting a lot of himself into that one. Yeah, I think he may have seen them in South Africa because he was either born. I think he was born. Yeah, he was born in yeah, South Africa. His father yeah. was um, working there. So I think, yeah, he may have encountered them at a young age in South Africa. <laughs> Big spiders. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Here's a question: Do you uh, do you recall if how many times has the ring been put on? So the first time it's put on is by 
in the in the Lord of the Rings. It's put on by uh, Frodo's Frodo's party. Uncle. No, 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 Bilbo. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo oh, puts it on. I mean, Bilbo. Yeah. I'm sorry. Frodo accidentally puts it on in uh, in the the end of the Prancing Pony, mm-hmm. right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, does he put it on before the end of the Fellowship of the Ring with the when they're going? Over the river. Well, he puts it he on puts when they're getting stabbed. From here, doesn't he? When he gets stabbed. Oh, at uh, Weathertop. Yeah. Weathertop. Yeah. Weathertop. That's how they can see him. Um. Right. Okay. So that's relatively. And now, he puts it on on the the rock of seeing or chair of. Yeah, I'm on. I'm on hand. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And that is near the end of the two towers. Right. Uh, no, of the, the fellowship. The fellowship. Oh, Oh, okay, sorry. So the end of the Fellowship, and then the end of the uh, first book of the Two Towers, the, the one we, we just finished reading previously, uh, was a book three. He puts it on when Boromir confronts him. Mm-hmm. No, the last and, one was book two. Well, that was that was when he's on that rock. He That's what I meant. That's when Boromir, that's yeah. book two. Of, that's the end of the Fellowship. Uh, uh, is not yeah. 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 Oh right. That's okay. how he escapes okay. from him. Right. It's it's the last time we saw them. Right. right? Yeah. Like I said, the last getting, these books are confusing. These book <laughs> yeah. <numbers>. yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, book this is, book two is especially confusing because this is where the fellowship has been broken, right? But the the last time we saw him at the end of that chapter, he's using the ring, and at the right. end of this book, uh, it's Sam who's using the ring in the same mm-hmm. sort of ways to avoid danger. It's like yeah. It's almost like cliffhangers, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It totally. This, to- this one totally ends on a cliffhanger, oh, right? Yeah. Because although uh, we thought he was dead, he's he's alive, and Mister uh, Sam Sam Gamgee's is going to go and try and rescue his 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 mm-hmm. master. Mm-hmm. The, the ring didn't seem to the ring didn't seem to affect Sam too much, other than giving him an hour's worth of thought in a moment. He didn't. Uh, um, like he, he you, seemed like himself. To I'll tell you what's really interesting to me about this is when I read, I was read it the very first time, is that my uncle was he'd read it before he's reading it to us right, and he was saying that the ring seems to affect people differently. Now one of the ring one of the things what? different people are affected differently. Okay. So so for example, Gollum right, uh, it doesn't make him have uh, the power to command other people. Right. Um, but uh, Fro- Frodo says to Gollum, if I put on precious, I could command you to do something and you would do it. Mm-hmm. Right. This is not and this is not something that um, that Gollum questions. He's like, hey, yeah, that would happen. Right. What? So he knows okay. he knows that the ring, ha- you know, having if you are a person who has experienced oh. putting on the ring, you know what powers it has. It's what you, it's like. uh you know, it's like a computer, right? So if you know how to use it, you can do all sorts of amazing things. But if you're, you know, you just know Internet Explorer. Well, I thought, I thought that was because <laughs> Gollum... Google is the Internet. You're kind of stuck with what powers yeah. you, you have. Yeah. So, But I thought when, that's because Gollum had been under the Precious's influence for so long, he would just do whatever it said. Right. Well, but it, it gives him the power to be invisible, which is the basic power it gives everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it gives that to uh, uh, Frodo. It gives it to um, to Sam. Bilbo. Yeah, yeah. and and Sam as well. But notice Sam's in the dark, which is. But no, what is 
this is the cool part is it seems to give Sam the power of hearing, sharp hearing and translation, which Ooh, it doesn't yeah. give which it doesn't give to uh to Frodo in any of the mansions. He he gets sort of a better vision, right? He can see more. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Go back very all the way to the beginning of the fellowship. What is Sam? How does he end up in this situation? Eavesdropping. He's listening. Yeah. He's a eavesdropper, right? Hey, he's listening. listening, not a speaker. Oh. Yeah. And and I thought that that was it. There's an, a counter argument that it, the ring gets more powerful as it get, it actually says it in this book. Yeah, right? It's getting more powerful yeah. as it gets closer to its source, um, which is interesting. And it gets heavier, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Having more and more trouble climbing those stairs because the ring's heavier and heavier. Gotta lay off those donuts. Right. Um, <laughs> did, did you did you notice the, the foreshadowing that when 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 Frodo is saying that to um. Uh, uh, Gollum, if uh, that you have to obey me, he says, I should put if I should put the precious. What did he say? If um, if, uh, if wearing it, I were to command you, you would obey it, even if we were to leap from a precipice and cast yourself into the fire. Yes. Oh boy, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's the power to command, right? Yeah. Not the power to translate. But but the other thing, what you said about um, the the ring giving Frodo more sight. Did you also notice that it's make it blinds him too? Like the thing that it's that it's taking away. Right. He tells he says to um, Gollum, the, the ring will twist your words. Which I mean, that's what Gollum does. But for Frodo, um, it blinds him. It blinds him when he's on the bridge to the wraiths. He can't see when he when he falls off of the cliff. He can't see. Like it takes. He has to have the elves um, rope to see again. And he has to think you about. Know, I was wondering the, the why that was. Thank up. you. But that's because what you just said that. that makes more, so much more sense now. And the two times that he's running blind, the ring is blinding him. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it, it accentuates his sight and takes it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's taking your natural proclivities and twisting around using yeah, them and for I think, own purposes. I think this is why the ring escaped or left um, abandoned Gollum is. Um, you know, it, it perceived that it, it wasn't going to be able to get done what it needed to get done right. with um, with this little guy under underneath the Misty Mountains catching fish. Took its time, though, didn't it? It did, yeah. <laughs> well, the Master wasn't really back yet. At that's that point, true. though, the Master's back. I mean, because they're driving him. He's in Mirkwood. That's where the wizards go. The backstory, you know, is mm-hmm. they're driving him out. They don't realize who it is, but they're like, get out of Mirkwood. And so... It's kind of like, all the, because it's not its own sentience, but because it's linked to Sauron, it's got part of him in it, it's kind of coming alive again and going, well, now I got to, it's like, it's almost like that dog you were mentioning before. It's like, I hear someone calling, I got to start getting, working my way home. Um, also, that, because you get another moment of him being so tempted to put that ring on, and it's, you know, the armies are marching out and there's mm-hmm. one of the ring wraiths there. And that was a very stirring, exhilarating moment. Even though I've read it before, I was just kind of like, it got done and I was all like awake, pumped up. Yeah. It was very tense. Yeah. We're going to see those, uh, those ring wraiths with their new steeds again in uh, books, right? But And that's where, um, I think you started off, you were going to talk about something that had to do with Galadriel's file, and that's where his fingers hit it, and he completely forgets ev- about the ring or anything. 
relaxes. Yeah. So I I want to yeah I want to talk about the magic items right. So yeah. every, this is this is in if you play Dungeons and Dragons, magic yeah. items are a lot more uh, uh, evenly distributed. Let's let's put it that way. There's a lot more of them around. People, uh, you know, I sort of handed them left and right. But unlike in a structured story that, you know, is planned out and re-edited, um, they don't always necessarily get used. Like if you have a, a bow of plus two killing orcs, right? You might get <laughs> killed by a pike before you get a chance to use right. it. In, mo- in most cases, Boromir's, uh, even Boromir's gift, right, gets uh, to be the, the shiny thing that proves that Faramir is um, is able to trust these right. two not humans, right? These not elves, whatever they are, the halflings, <laughs> right? So yeah. the, the, there's at least that use. Now uh, we get uh, Sam's going to eventually get to use his his dirt, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, his little pin or whatever. Um, Bilbo, uh, sorry, Frodo is given the vial that gets used. <laughs> Um, uh, he also, the use, uh, from the sting gets transferred, right, from, from Frodo to Sam. And, uh, he leaves him his mithril armor, though, right? Right. Which I think is interesting. Um, he doesn't, you know, completely strip his corpse. <laughs> he takes the ring, he takes the sword, um, and he takes the vial as well, which I thought was, you know, so all the magic items, they get, they get to get their use. Um, and then there's the rope, and I want to talk about the rope. So they come to the cliff, right? They figure they Frodo tries to climb down. That doesn't work. Sam says, "I'll tie the rope." They tie the rope. Uh, they go down, and then they get to the bottom. Of the, Damn, the rope's up there. <laughs> so what is? How does the rope come down? Is it a magic rope? It's Galadriel's name that does it. I felt. I think you're right. Yeah. I think I think you're right. It's her item. Uh, well, and it's not hers. It, well, it, it, she, she, that's not his gift. But she wove. But she wove it. Some random. And also, right? yeah. but I felt like this was connected to that thing of words have power. You know, when Bilbo's at the bridge and he's shouting yeah. to the ring wraiths, and he's like, "What is he saying, Galadriel? El, El, yeah, whatever it right. is." El, El, and El, El, they El, El, shut yeah. his mouth so he can't talk because it hurts him. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So that's, I just felt that was another manifestation of that in a sense. It is. It is a very, uh, uh, in this theory I've got going, it is the manifestation of that. But it's not, it's not, remember, he, he's given dirt, right? So it's not his magic item in the sense that it's, you know, uh, everybody was given magic items from Galadriel, right? Right. But, but that was not his because he got his dirt and then, he says, oh, and I, I just need some rope. And some random elf says, oh, you want some rope? We got rope. Yeah. Right? So we just don't even the boats, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, more like, it's more like the, um, the uh, way bread, right? Yeah. yeah, I was confused. They, they made the cloaks. I was thinking they had woven the ropes. So that I was putting more personal connection there than... Yeah, the, there's the, yeah. the cloaks, there's the ropes, yeah. there's the bread, right? There's all sorts of things. Yeah. But um, what's interesting is that I had a, an idea. It's like, oh, so they get to the bottom of the cliff, and then they have this conversation. Oh, darn it, I want that rope. But they can't go back up and climb because that defeats the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're going to leave it there for the return journey. Or for Gollum. Probably. They don't want to leave That's it for right. Him. So, But who's following them is Gollum, right? Yeah. yeah. 
So does Gollum untie the rope? He could never use the rope. He couldn't he even touch, touch it. Can't touch that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I have this theory that you know, Gollum's lying, right? That uh, that's what I would say when somebody ties me up. I was, oh, I'm allergic to synthetics. Uh, maybe. <laughs> 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 Gollum doesn't really. I, I I admit it's a very terrible theory. He lies. He screams, he screams pretty loudly when he gets tied up again yeah. by Faramir. That's right. Yeah, that's true. No matter yeah. what happens, he doesn't like being tied and up. And he can't eat the limba spread or anything because it chokes yeah. him. I mean, it's the, the I, I kind of really feel like the consistency of the fact that anything that's good or touched by those stinking elves, as he calls them, yeah. is actually I mean. harmful to him because he's been so long under the influence of evil. Everything mm-hmm. we like, he hates. Everything right. we think is disgusting, he loves, right? Um, he, 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 he hates the light. He hates ropes. He hates, uh, you know, herbs. He can't have nice things. He, he doesn't <laughs> like nice things. Nice things are bad. Yeah. Nasty things are nasty. <laughs> Keep it they're up. Not, I love it. Not <laughs> nice. So for him, it just doesn't make sense that he would untie the rope for the reason that we 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 think he's honestly allergic to, you know, elf stuff. So he just wouldn't touch it. And he, more importantly, he doesn't need it, right? Right. We see him... A minute later, crawling down the ro- uh, the the cliff face Spider-Man without the style. Yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> no, 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 not Spider-Man style. Dracula style. <laughs> he goes upside down, doesn't he? Yeah. That's right. <sighs> so this is precedes Spider-Man, Seth. Uh, yeah, I not know. Dracula. It, it, that reference is not one that's um, using. But, but it also, could be I don't. I guess they can't see it. But they also the narrator just says. To the complete surprise of both ho- the hobbits, it came loose. Yeah, <laughs> Frodo's doubt really surprised me there. I mean, after all the things I've seen, you know, Frodo was like pretty adamant, like, no, nope, must have just, he must have afraid it, nope, must yeah. have been the knot. But that's like the his, old yeah. friendship thing, bugging somebody who's so proud of all his knots. He knows sure. he's proud of his oh, knots. Sure. You know, I want, I want to, I want to hype this up a little bit because I, I, I think it's going to blow you away, like it blew me away when I, I right. sort of figured it out. Okay. <laughs> So, there is a mystery in the previous yes. book. Right? Oh, right. We talked about this. I, what happened to the Entwives, right? What and did happen to the Entwives? Well, what, what did happen to them? Jesse, what? what happened so, to the Entwives? Well, let's, 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 uh, go, go back to the fact that early in, uh, Hobbiton, right? They, they're at the Green Dragon Inn. They mentioned the, you know, there, there, somebody saw an elf, uh, uh, an elm tree walking or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's all oh, those tales, you know, <laughs> but they're not, they're not antwise. Don't do those right? imitations anymore. Those are terrible. No. Sorry. <laughs> they're not the antwives. We're pretty sure about that because, um, you know, there's the old forest. The trees are sort of alive there, but that's not really. I really feel like it could have been an antwife. I'm still convinced it is. Right. But, but anyway. that's not where the ants tell them where they went. They actually say uh, in the two towers where the Entwives went and set up a garden, and it's in the Brownlands. Where's that? And that, that's just under Mirkwood, which is right uh, above where we are in the M- M- Mule. Is it? Yeah. He's got all if these maps. The map, I never the look at of, them. At the end of, um, of the two towers, there's a map. So you've got Mirkwood, the Brownlands, Fanghorn's on one side of the river. On the Anduin, and the other side is the Brownlands. Well, 
the brown lands are brown because they ain't, ain't green no more. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the Emin Mule is right at the edge of no, uh, Mordor's mountain um, you know, border. So this is this is the area where they would be. And as I was saying, I, I found a thread somewhere on the internet about how, you know, somebody says they claimed to have found the Entwives. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I read through the threads and read and read and read and read. And nobody's like the guy who claimed to have found them says, you know, it's it's uh, he's not going to tell you. You have to find it on your own. Oh, going to spend money on that. But there's a lot of digital ink spilled on people trying to, you know, yep. figure out whether he, this guy's just, you know, trying to up his thread presence or whatever. Okay. In, in any case. It's interesting, um, and this this is the this is from the Taming of Smeagol, page two fifty eight in my book, last paragraph of two fifty eight, and they've just finished watching. I was re listening to the book, and they've just finished watching the storm, and uh, they're at the edge of the cliff, or just before the edge of the cliff, and twice it's mentioned the skirt. Of the storm, right? So I'm thinking I'm primed. <laughs> I'm primed <laughs> wives, right? Primed for finding man wives. And then uh, I'm gonna read this here, okay? okay. Well, that wives <laughs> like, yeah, and some storms, storms related well, to. Okay, let's go. Okay, so the important part is they've just been looking over at Fanghorn, the edge of where Fanghorn is, right? Um, Gondor, etc., Rohan, etc. And then we get the, the the skirts, and then we get this. At last, they, oh, this is the second to last paragraph before the bottom here. At last, they were brought to a halt. The ridge took a sharper bend northward and was gnashed, or, sorry, gashed by a deeper ravine. On the further side, it reared up again, many fathoms at a single leap. A great gray cliff loomed before them, cut sheer down as if by a knife stroke. They could go no further forwards and must turn now either west or east. But west would lead them only into more labor and delay back towards the heart of the hills. East would take them to the outer precipice. There's nothing for it but to scramble down the gully, Sam said Frodo. (laughs) Uh, Let's see what it leads to. A nasty drop, I'll bet, said Sam. And then this is where the description makes me interested. The cleft was longer and deeper than it seemed. Some way down, they found a few gnarled and stunted trees, the first they had seen for days, twisted birch for the most part, here and there a fir tree. Many were dead and gaunt, bitten to the core by the eastern winds. Once in milder days, there must have been a fair thicket in the ravine, but now, after some fifty yards, the trees came to an end, uh, though broken stumps straggled on almost to the cliff's brink. The bottom of the gully, which lay along the edge of the rock fault was rough with broken stone and slanted deeply down when they came at last to the end of it Frodo stopped and leaned out so the ne- very next thing is they they talk about how to get down the cliff right this is a place where they if they can if they they're stuck right this is the edge but this is the the best place from which to go down because everywhere else is steeper or more circuitous right and Frodo goes down, and then he has to come back up. Well, he has to come back up because, you know, it's too slippery or whatever. And then Sam says, curse me for a ninny hammer. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> swear words from Lord of the Rings. Ninny hammers. <laughs> um, Noodles. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> I do remember. So he he gets the rope out, and what does he do? Ties it to a stump. Ties it to a stump. Ties it to a stump. Mm-hmm. And then they, they start talking about where the rope came from, right? Which is, oh, I got this rope from uh, the elves. I'm not <laughs> This is some elf rope. And they get down. Uh, and then they say, oh, darn, I don't want to leave that elf rope behind. And then what happens? It comes loose. Now, it could be a magic rope, right? But it's not. Not in the same way that the Lembass is not magic bread. It's just, you know, because elves touch it, it's awesome, right? When yeah, elves make it, yes. it's not magic because they say it's not magic, right? It's right. just the way we do stuff, right? They have magic. They, they've got a magic ring. Remember, even though this is supposed to be high fantasy, it actually isn't, right? right? People say it's high fantasy, but actually the amount of magic is so minimal in Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, that'd be a pretty useful technology that you, you know, wiggle the rope or something and it, it automatically unloosens itself. That'd be a, something we could develop today. Absolutely. You got a Bluetooth, the, uh, you know, rope electronic, right? But that's, that's magic. So. The theory is that that stump of those birch trees that are right on the precipice, and we know that um, that uh, Tolkien thought that they were destroyed in the Brownlands, um, is the like the edge of the Entwives. The last of the Entwives are up there, and that little forest that we got is because they don't know about. Uh, because they don't know about Fanghorn, right? They're, these guys have not been there. They they don't know that the Entwives exist, so they're not looking out for it. But it makes sense, if you think about it, that that tree stump damaged as it is. Here's talk about some elves and says, you know what? We kind of like those elves. <laughs> and those poor little hobbits that just went down there, whatever they be, not too bad. I'll let go of the rope. They want it back. And it's like, well, that's not much, is it? <laughs> it's pretty weak, isn't it? Ten points for creativity, though. I mean, uh, yeah. I got one more. I got one more little thingy for you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Structurally, this is a structural argument. Okay. Okay. When when the two hobbits go into Fanghorn, what do they what do they do right before they are found by an ant? Oh, they, they untie their ropes. Their core, their bonds. Yeah. They do. They untie their bonds and then they sit down on a stump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna oh. counter with Tolkien himself, who and Seth could probably tell me I'm wrong, and I'm completely. But no. in reading his letters, most of them got became rather wearisome. Because they've been mined for so much information, it's been written clearly into books. But he was answering any and every question as thoroughly as possible, and even going back into Silmarillion stuff, which hadn't been come out yet, and answering questions. And somebody said, how about those wives? Where are they? And he said, I don't know. No one knows. And they said, did they ever meet up? And he goes, I don't think they did, but I don't know. So I feel like... He covered that territory pretty thoroughly, so if he knew where the Entwives were, he would have said something. I think the book stands on its own, irregardless of the author. says Because oftentimes, when you're writing a book, you're in the zone, right? And it's not all coming from... Well, that's true. It's not all coming from conscious activity. And 
if we just go with what is in the text, mm-hmm. um, I actually was flipping through and I found this. How very sad, said Pippin. How is it they all died? They did not die, said Treebeard. <laughs> I never said died, right? So this is right at the, then he's about to sing the song of the Antlies, right? Um, but I'm going to try and find that little scene where they are first meeting and we'll see if there's any sort of reflection there because it's not an argument saying, you know, here's proof that right. the Antlies are there. But if you think of what it's, it, they were destroyed. They were, there's an argument that they were attacked and their, their gardens somehow disappeared. Well, right. I would say my other That's, counter would be from the book itself, where every time Galadriel's name gets mentioned and they're in trouble, something, it's got some kind of a power against evil again, which is set up at the very beginning when Frodo's at the the Ford and they make him so he can't talk because when he's calling out those elf names, they're cringing in fear. Or they're recoiling in fear. And then later on, I believe it's when um, he's, He's speaking an elf tongue in, in Shelob's cave and everything. And it's like, Ugh, you know, um, I just feel like that's been established already. And the last thing he says, he goes, oh, yeah, Galadriel, whatever. And then he just says Galadriel and strokes the rope. And that's when it comes loose. He yep. doesn't have anything else. And so I feel that I understand what you're saying. And you could be absolutely right. But the structure of the story, I feel, has given the power of words that it's not necessarily magic. It's just power. There is no truth of matter, right? This is not, that's what I love about fiction. Yeah. You only go by what the text actually says and what it does for you. Mm -hmm. So there's no, we cannot go to middle earth except by reading this book. Very true. But, one of the things uh, I can keep marshalling this argument, exactly, um, and I will let you, I'm done now. That's all I have. (laughs) One one of the things, one of the things that, is there is what is uh it, it happens later on when they meet uh who uh, there's some magical sort of or element so w- there's a prediction um by is it Galadriel that you will find friends it in was, the no, unlikely um, place Elrond Elrond and it's Faramir right yeah they mm-hmm. they say oh it's Faramir mm-hmm. right you you're <laughs> Elrond is right, right? Faramir uh-huh. is the one who is the one they think of. But they don't know about the Ents, right? They don't know... Uh, right. So the, they the fact that... Them. Right, so that that's, could be another example of, of that. But um, I just think it's it's very interesting that, you know, on the edge of a forest, right, two hobbits sit down on a stump and are... Uh, suddenly, you know, taken by a tree, right? A tree picks yeah. them up and and carries them off. Well, in this case, it's not a tree picking them up. It's a tree letting go of their rope so that they can continue on their journey. I, I think it, symmet- symmetrically it works. I don't think it makes sense to, you know, go too deep, <laughs> deeper on it because it's, it's just a little line, right? You're not staking your entire reputation on it? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Uh, no, you know what? I don't think that, I, I don't think it, it can, it's an argument that can be defeated unless you find a better candidate, right? If we're trying to solve mysteries, right? If, and it certainly is set up as a mystery, right? Yeah, I guess my problem is I never cared what happened to the Aunt Wives. Um, so I have a bad <laughs> attitude. <laughs> about them. 
<laughs> well, you well, know, I, later that that part where he does where they do go through that fragrant fragrant area could that mm-hmm. have ever been farmed in the garden? Yeah, that's one of the other candidates. A, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it it is full of laurels and mm-hmm. A's and all sorts of uh, aromatic areas, right? So. Well, I was really, to pick the spices. Yeah, and I was really struck when you were saying, you know, they could you could see that it used to be it had been, mm-hmm. you know, a little grove and all these things and I was like, Oh, the ant wives were there once. So I I love that um that whole calling to mind that this place had its history too before it was the Brownlands. You know, they would have gone there to try to to garden because that's what they did. I'm I'm with Julie though. I, it's not so much that I don't care what happened to the ant wives, it's that I like about this world that there are things that we don't know about it. There are things that Tolkien doesn't know about it because, you know, kind of, yeah. we've talked about this before, kind of the modern, the modern way of doing fantasy and science fiction is to world build the hell out of it and just you know, <laughs> design every nook and cranny. And, and Tolkien does a lot of that. And we, you know, talked about that too, but there are things that he can't explain and doesn't care to explain. And I don't, I think it would be less magical. Like, Oh, the Antwives, they, they went right over there. Yeah, you know. Well, uh, I, I'm going to give you a couple more. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I know I'm beating this to death, but <laughs> structurally, structurally, the time. Remember that uh, the hobbits uh, who are kidnapped are taken away, and there's a, I think it's a three-day foot journey, right, over overland by uh, the dwarf and the elf and the human. They chase after the the orcs who've got the two uh, hobbits. Then they come to the edge of the forest. They've made good their escape, right? Um, they've just escaped from the the um, the danger, right? And are on their own. And that's what we have here at the very beginning of uh, the Taming of Smeagol. It's three days after uh, the the leaving of the crossing of the river, uh, leaving Boromir and crew behind. So it's like almost happening at the same time. And then, uh, there is a, I want to just read the description from Treebeard, the chapter of Treebeard. Um, so this is, uh, the end of page 70. Uh, they saw that they had only come some three or four miles into the forest. The heads of the trees marched down the slopes towards the plain. There, near the fringe of the forest, tall spires of curling black smoke went up, wavering and floating towards them. The winds, so that's actually probably the orcs being attacked and burned, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The wind's changing, said Mary. It's turned east again. Now, remember, this is happening approximately the same time. Right. I do um, love that, because in the second half of the book, things will happen, and you'll think back and go, and at one point, he almost, he says something like, well, at this time, this was happening but usually you're just going, oh, wait, I think that's when this was happening. And so I love yeah, that. Yeah. It's, where it's he's not connecting like it for you. Yeah. But it's pretty close because even the wind is mapped out here. Yeah. Right? The, the storm that they that they are right. um, near is is headed toward. That's why it's clearing up where they are. Right. Yeah. It's, come, so, it's going toward Rohan or wherever they are. Yeah. Yeah. The Emin Mule. Yeah. So it turned east again. It feels cool up here. Yes, said Pippin. I'm afraid this is only a passing gleam, and it will all go gray again. What a pity. This shaggy old forest looked so different in the sunlight. I almost felt I liked the place. Remember? (laughs) Um, Magic mine. (laughs) (laughs) Almost felt you liked the forest? That's good. That's uncommonly kind of... So, 
they are suddenly confronted by uh, a sort of a magic talking tree. And it just, I think that that, I mean, even if it was an accident, right? There's a lot of trees in yeah. in Lord of the Rings. I mean, the, the guy who loves trees more than per- yeah. pretty much anything else. Uh, and, oh, by the way, this is the final nail in the coffin, then I'm going to be done. Okay. <laughs> what kind of trees were they? They were birch. Right? right? They were birch. Where does the word book come from? From the word birch. No idea. Done. Ah. Drop the mic. Da, da, da. <laughs> Etymologically, it comes from birch because birch use. Has birch this mental trees. image of you, you're dressed like 1920s dress up style and you're bowing at your podium and we're all standing up with our gloves on <laughs> going, bravo, bravo. Well played. Sir. I just think it's, a, it's, it's, it's so cool that even if this is, you know, completely wrong, it's actually interesting because it, the world is so deep. Right. Yeah, because like Seth says, the mystery is left there, and actually that kind of goes along with Tolkien going, I have no idea what happened to the Ent Lives. I don't feel like they met up again, but I'm not sure. You know, he's, you know. Um, when we were talking about the word stuff, it, it made me think of another passage, which I found really interesting this time through. Because we always talk about Tom Bombadil, or everybody does, and goes, he's yes. wonderful, but he's not really connected to anything else. He, what use is he? And if he's no use, why even have him in a movie or anywhere else, right? And then I just never noticed this part before where they're in Shelob's lair, and mm-hmm. Sam's, they're hearing this gurgling, and it's dark, and they're whirling around going, oh, what's going on? It's a trap, said Sam. It's and a he trap. Lay- Oh, yeah, sorry, thank you, said Sam. Sorry, that was Akbar, but okay. <laughs> and he laid his hand upon the hilt of his sword, and as he did so, he thought of the darkness of the barrow whence it came. I can't really do this voice. I wish old Tom was near us now, he thought. Then, as he stood, darkness about him and a blackness of despair and anger in his heart, it seemed to him that he saw a light. A light in his mind, almost unbearably bright at first, as a sun ray to the eyes of one long hidden in a windowless pit. Then the light became color, green, gold, silver, white. Far off, as in a little picture drawn by elven fingers, he saw the Lady Galadriel standing on the grass in Lorien, and her gifts and gifts were in her hands. And you, ring bearer, he heard her say, remote but clear, for you I have prepared this. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he said, I might not be able to come, but I'll help you if I can, essentially. And he called on Tom just by thinking of him. Words are magic. That Yeah, that chance if chance it be. He thought of Tom, and Tom is what opened his mind up to even remember and think of Galadriel and things of light, or that allowed that beam of light to come into his mind that was so counter to the darkness all around them. And I just thought, wow, again, the power of words. Mm-hmm. And that happens again. Um, Sam is crouched looking at Shelob, and a thought came to him as if some remote voice had spoken, and he fumbled in his breast for yes. the vial of light again. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, Sam, he's, Sam seems to be bringing light by thought throughout this book. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, especially my... Um, the next book, you're, the next time we encounter them, um, you're going to really love kind of what that turns into. Sam is 
he gets some amazing stuff because of that development that you see really just deepens. You, you know what I love throughout this book, the you know, the big theme was light and dark and and stuff. But when with this file, the like the way that they describe she loves death, it's that he's he's brandishing this light. And then he says, it flamed like a star that leaping from the firmament sears the dark air with intolerable light. Intolerable. <laughs> That's great. And then <laughs> no terror such out of, out of heaven had ever burned her face before. The beams entered into her wound and scored it with unbearable light. The dreadful infection of light spread from eye to eye. So light in the darkness is an infection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the light, too. My see, you mentioned the passage earlier of Sam watching Frodo asleep and that he seemed um, oh. old and serene, but he also mentions the same light that Gandalf in Elrond's house um, saw Frodo asleep in his arm on the coverlet, and he said it to me, starting to look like uh, he may in the end become a vial of light, mm-hmm. um, clear light for those who see to see who can. And I, I thought that was a one-off, but I didn't remember or I never noticed until this reading that Sam seems to be seeing it in Frodo too. And it seems to be getting lighter. Um, he seems to be getting clearer or lighter. And I wonder what you guys make of that. I mean, Frodo seems to be becoming more divine. Is that the right word? I mean, it's, no, he's, he's fading just like the, the ring race. No, right? that's, he's interesting. Yeah. Cause I think of it as being purified. Everything is being stripped away as he goes on this journey. Um, he's having to be pure in what he's trying to get. And as you say, he's, he's, the ring is also working on him, but what's being left is light is the way I feel about it. He's, there's lots of light going through him with all those holes being poked. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't know what's coming, but is he, I mean, now he's died again, almost not really, but he's been felled. Is, does this sort of resurrect him? Does it give him more strength as he goes forward? Like, is he a, better able to to deal with the ring? He's going to become Frodo the White. No, I'm asking. Is that, no, are you joking? You're joking, but... Yeah. No, no, I'm not. I mean, it's a parallel, isn't it? Well, that's what I'm asking, yeah. Uh, I mean, without giving too much away, the trend of the weariness and all of that continues. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. In that, in that the movie's very accurate. Um... But he, he, his eventual fate is that of all the elves, right? Yeah. Well, he, yeah, because that's just how that's going to go. Well, okay, I have one thing I would like to bring up, which um, I <laughs> I had seen the movies and I had read the book once or twice. And so I'm listening to the Tolkien professor at whatever point this was that it, the book really opened up for me. Or it may have been when... Um, Corey Olson did his Mythgard Academy deeper thing into it. But anyway, he asked a question that totally blew my freaking mind. So I'm just going to pass this on to you guys because the way I always saw it and the way it was presented essentially was, you know, when Sam is faced with, you've got to go on. Here Mm -hmm. you are. You're all alone. And he's thinking, oh, no, I'm just here to help. And it's like, you know what? And he's hearing all these echoes of Elrond talking about why they sent people with Frodo and all this stuff. And he's like, ah, damn it. You know, I'll, okay. So he takes the ring and all the other things he thinks he needs. And, um, he goes and 
what Corey Olson said is, well, you know what? That's a choice. And I think the chapter is called, isn't it called Sam's Choice or something like that? The Choices choice of Master Samwise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really bad about not looking at chapter titles and thinking about them. But he says, well, so why are they talking about this? And you're thinking, well, every choice he made was that he had to kill Shelob. He had to do these things. And he's like, but what if he had not taken the ring and left Frodo's body? Because when he runs back, he says, you should have listened to your heart, not your head, you idiot. You know, or you noodle or whatever he calls himself. (laughs) And um, what we see in the last book is everything that happens in the last book is one of the corrections needed to the big plan, partly because Sam chose the way he did. It doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. It was the only choice he could think of at the time. But his choice, it never occurred to me. He could have done anything else. That's what anyone would do. And I'm like, oh, but he could have like, I don't know what he could have done. But he didn't have to take the ring. He didn't have to leave Frodo right where he was. I mean, he could have dragged him behind a bush or something. I don't know. <laughs> he has other. He has he has worse choices. He could have like laid down beside him and waited to die. Right. Oh, right. right. Uh, but just because he has, you know, he, just because he takes the the best choices and the most reasonable choices doesn't mean they're not choices, right? Or that they're the. Remember, they start off by making foolish choices. They send Merry and Pippin, even though it doesn't really make sense, and we shouldn't probably do it. But I just feel like this is right. And again, we come back to the. You should have listened to your heart, not your head. You knew you you came to stay. Well, it's like signing a contract Frodo. you don't. If you sign a contract you haven't read, you know, like well, I have a feeling this is a bad idea. You're probably <laughs> right. 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 It's that hunch, internal thing, and him saying. You knew you were supposed to stay by him. That's what you you came to do that, and you left him. And now what else he could have done, we weren't there, so we don't know. But it it's really, I just remember my mind was blown because I thought, well, anybody would do that. I'm like, well, you know what? Through this whole book, the wise choices have not been the ones anybody would do. They well, he, he seems to have acted pretty wisely. If he if he hadn't have taken the ring and the you know sting, um, who would have the ring now? But Wait a minute. One of the things they said, because I was thinking about that, is they say, wait a minute. They Somebody cut this open and took stuff off his body. What if he had just left him all wound up? They'd have gone, eh, and kicked him over to the side of the road and not bothered with him. Well, well no, they order. have to bring him they, in. That order. Oh, okay. and, and one of the things on the list of orders is you know, to t- t- strip him and take every, yeah. every piece. They would have had it. Every Every little thing, including rings. Yeah. Okay, I admit I well, rings. I admit the, the, I read the end really fast this morning. But anyway, <laughs> okay, um, I was, it would definitely be in the hands of of uh, the orcs, yeah. if not. Anyway, uh, I, oh, I guess not in the hands of in the floaty, uh, ghosty corpse of uh, of the eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But did How you does he put the ring on it? Gollum talked about the black hand only has four fingers and he shudders horribly right? in this part of the book. And I went, so he's not just an eye because the black hand only has four fingers. And they're talking about that when they're talking about the finger that was cut off. Yeah. Like, so there's more of a, I looked at that and went, oh, because we were talking about, does he have a body or not? Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. And wouldn't that be frustrating if it got the ring, got orcs to bring the ring and they're like, ah, oh, I didn't think about this part of the plan. How am I going to put this thing on? Ah. Well, anyway, I'm not saying there was a better or different decision, but the whole thing is called the decisions of Master Samwise, and that's a huge decision. The putting on the ring, 
the taking the ring, the I have to go on. And then he runs back as if he made the wrong decision. And we don't know what else he could have done instead. But anyway, I'm just I mean, maybe there was a ditch you could have rolled him into and hunched down. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. They talk specifically about choices so much. I mean, in the last book and in this one, near the beginning, this one, it says, is it the will of dark towers that steers us? And Frodo says, all my choices have proved ill. And then later he says, which way should I choose? If both lead to terror and death, what good lay in choice? Like, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the, the last, the very last map in the Lord of the Rings, or the Two Towers copy I've got. And it, it's a very detailed, you know, uh, map be- connecting Gondor and Mordor and <laughs> Rohan all, all together. Mm. And there's the marshes there. And I just, uh, it's called the Nindolf, or Wet Wang. <laughs> wet Wang. Just above the dead marshes, uh, just below the dead marshes is Wet Wang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a Wang Wet. And across the river is Ant Wash. That's pretty fun stuff. Well, I think Wang, Wang, or Wang is like an old English word for meadow, I want to say. I could okay, be wrong about that, meadow. but I think it's, yeah. Vong. That makes sense, because yeah. he would have used Old English for as much as he could near Rohan. Yeah. Or Rohan, right. however you say it. Rohan, yeah. Rohan. So, I want to plug, um, real quick, at least some point before we end, I want to plug this, um, the the new book called The Fellowship by... Oh. Yeah, you're reading that. I want to read that. I'm reading it. It's 28 hours in audio or something, so I had hoped to be done by this podcast. I'm not done. I still have five or six hours left um so yeah as you can tell by the length it's not for the faint of heart it's not you know <laughs> a cursor, cursory you know jog through the inklings it is very in-depth about um c.s lewis's life tolkien's life and also charles williams who is sort of a, a really mm-hmm. interesting character um mm-hmm. owen barfield who wrote a lot about the nature of language and poetry and was part of that group and it, it goes it gets down and dirty it's into the inklings it's about the Inklings, yeah. It's about, um, yeah, it's about that period from, I guess, nineteen nineteen thirty to mid fifties when they're at their most active. Although it starts from the beginning with biographical um, sketches of Tolkien and Lewis. Um, I've I'm getting near the end of the book and I still haven't gotten to Narnia or Lord of the Rings, so it's <laughs> oh it's not God. you know it's not the greatest hits. It is delves deep deep into these guys' philosophical underpinnings. It's 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 really great, but uh, yeah, it's it's a commitment. You you posted a link to that, right, on Twitter? I did, yeah. So, and what's the uh, focus of their telling of it? Is it is it about why these people had their focus as they did in writing? Am I right in thinking that, or that it's focus? It's really about it's trying to tell the story of this group. Yeah, like you said. Um, why, what sort of inspired this collection of people to come together and share their ideas and write, but it, it talks about their philosophical underpinnings. It talks a lot right. about Lewis's atheism and his conversion and how mm-hmm. that's, I mean, I think the, the real underpinning of it is this idea of intertextuality that all these texts are talking to each other. They're, um, yeah. commenting on each other. All of that is. Are they is reading really each other's minds? <laughs> they are 
while they're reading each um they're assembling in Lewis's rooms in Modlin College, Oxford, or a pub called the Eagle and Child or Bird and Baby, colloquially. And they're they're meeting a couple times a week and they're actually reading drafts to each other, they're critiquing each other's stuff, sometimes brutally. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that... a fly on the wall there, huh? Yeah. Was it Hugo Dyson or somebody who said, you know, oh, not another damned elf? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's there's a uh, alternate theory on the end. Why? Got to tell oh, you, gee, it's related to, to this. My library card. It's related, card. To, it's related <laughs> to this. I, I promise. Okay, so um, uh, uh, one of the arguments is that uh, that the vocal mannerisms of of Treebeard are those of C.S. Lewis. Yep. And that because they're meeting at this pub twice a week, and it's all a bunch of men, they're gone for several hours every night. And so the question is not where the Entwives are. It's where the Entwives are saying, where are our husbands? Where are our husbands? It's gone somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um <laughs> it's funny because they're they're they they have very long discussions, right? That's the ants. Oh, the ants are busy, busy yeah. garden. Yeah. I uh, love that. That's pretty But cool. yeah, it's it's a male club. I mean, famously Dorothy L. Sayers, who I've not read, but we were talking oh. before the podcast about She's you know, good. mystery stories. Um anyway, she you know, she was in Oxford working during this time. She was friends with C. S. Lewis, um and Charles Williams. But uh, was not, you know, allowed into the Inklings. It was, it was a male exclusive club. She would have been a would have been a shoe in. <laughs> oh yeah, because she wrote a series of really successful Peter Whimsey mysteries, and then um, quit. I was surprised to find this out recently. She quit because she thought writing the Christian apologetics books that she was writing were more important. I was like, wow, I had no idea that. I mean, I knew she wrote a uh, did a translation of Dante. Uh, the Divine Comedy and wrote evidently her translation's not the best, but her notes are like amazing. Oh, and so wow. she was she was doing yeah, I've always been meaning to get my hands on a copy so I could read her notes. And um then she also wrote several other books, uh one of which I think C. S. Lewis would routinely recommend to people who'd say, So this Christianity thing, what do you, I have these questions and he'd go, here's two books you should read. And one of them was one of her basic books about him. So he obviously respected her writing. It's just a real interesting uh, thing. And I knew just recently, I think maybe because of that book coming out, I realized, I didn't know that she was friends with any of them or that she, yeah, she would have been a shoe in. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. We're done. We're done. We're done. I'm looking at the maps. Eisenmouth. You know, and I never read maps because I already have in my head where everything is, and I just, maps, just, my head's wrong, and I don't want to, but the the maps were good in this. They're like Pippin, who never read any maps when they were in Rivendell. <laughs> yeah, I never know where I am. Yeah.